that's one of the things that's most frustrating to me about other security organizations is just, to me, there's just a lack of, of helpfulness within them. From Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to hear our new episodes first. I'm Steve Moore, and today I sit down with Richard Kaufman, CISO of Emeticis. Richard and I talk about balancing the executive responsibilities of a CISO with being a tactical security team leader. We also talk about how he looks at security audits as more of an opportunity to manage what he calls adversary management. As a new CISO, it's already a challenge connecting with your ELTN board. So how do you manage that when one foot must still firmly be planted in your SOC's day-to-day work? Does this situation present a unique benefit to the organization? Richard, thanks so much for being on the show. For the uninitiated, please introduce yourself. Yeah, sure thing. So thanks for having me on today, Steve. Uh, my name is Richard Kaufman, and I'm the Chief Information Security Officer for Emeticis. Emeticis is one of our nation's largest providers of hospice, home health, and personal care. Our company employs around 25,000 members across 500 care centers in North America. Awesome. No, thank you for that. Now, how long have you been a CISO? For about 18 months now. So trial by fire. Okay. Yeah. What's been the first sort of officer position? Is that correct? Yes, it is. So you mentioned trial by fire. What's been kind of the biggest surprise to you? I know moving into kind of high visibility positions, I know personally I had a list of things that I was really worried about. And it it turned out that most of those things were not an issue, but lots of other things I didn't think about kind of popped up. So if you had any of those similar situations at a team or maybe even a personal level? I think one of the biggest transitions for, for me was learning how to balance the, the new expectations in an executive role with the uh, need to still be rather tactical within my team. Even though we're a fairly large organization, our IT shop tends to run very lean. And that's certainly, you know, security is no exception to that. And so one of the things that, you know, I still am, am figuring out is going from the boardroom one day into the SOC the next day and being effective in both of those situations. Yeah. And I think, so in our earlier conversation, we spoke about kind of what's it like to be lean and, and to, to really act on that. And I, I want to get to that. That's a very difficult balance. And I typically say you can only do one. And the only caveat is you're in a small team you have a, and, and you run lean where you kind of have to do, there's no choice. So you kind of have to figure out good enough for both, um, which I think is kind of where, what you're rounding out and doing right now. Is that, is that roughly accurate? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think one of the strengths that I bring to the table in, in both of the roles is it's been a while since I've been good on a technical level, but I think I'm still able to tell the story. And that's one of the things that's really resonated within our organization is someone being able to come into the role and tell the story of this is what, this is what a strong security function can look like. And here's how we can not only keep our patient's data safe, but ultimately provide a higher quality of patient care through some of our changes in the way that we address security uh, incidents when they pop up. So you've covered a lot already. I want to, before we get too far ahead. Yeah. So relatively new CISO, 
you're working on balancing kind of being good at both the board and kind of being relevant to your team. Looking back, maybe to your younger self, what advice would you have to kind of, if you're looking over the shoulder of your younger self, or what mentorship do you wish you would have had that would have better prepared you for maybe today or, or a year and a half ago? Yeah, so that's a, that's a great question. And I think my career arc is a, is a little bit weird in the fact that I started off like most people did in help desk and systems administration. And then my next career hop out of that was actually into internal audit. A lot, a lot of times auditors will start an audit and then go operational and I kind of did vice versa. So I like to say, you know, I served my time as an internal auditor and did that. And just that experience in and of itself taught me so much, not just about controls and how to approach the compliance aspect of our position, but ultimately gave me visibility into what senior leaders, what board members are looking for. And like that relevance that you're speaking of about what decision makers ultimately want to know about. We know we're surrounded in a risk environment every single day. But being able to kind of drive through that, that cloud and get to the real issues at, at heart of what risk actually is to an organization, I think that's one of the things that if I, if, I had kind of, if I could teleport myself back and teach myself that lesson earlier, that definitely would have you know, saved some bumps and bruises along the way. So I'll say that you gained a lot of street cred for me with the help desk comment. That's, <laughs> that's, that's tough ass work, man. I mean, that's a uh, you're getting the worst. Everyone's already mad by the time they reach out to you. However, you lost some street cred going to the <laughs> I think there's a lack of relevance there in many cases where their auditors, they mean well, but they don't, they're sort of looking after something that they've never done. If there's an auditor listening, what advice do you have for them? Yeah, keep going. That was one of the things that, quite honestly, I, you know, it, it's interesting being in the position that I am in now because when I first got into, that system admin role. And I had, I was working for my first publicly traded company. And, you know, I had a big four auditor sitting in front of me asking a question. And I was like, well, that's not what you want to know at all. Here's the real evidence of what you're looking for. And I can only imagine the look of frustration on my boss's face at the time as, uh, you know, I was, I was answering above and beyond kind of the, the call of what the auditors were asking for. But I think that transparency is, is something that, you know, both the internal auditors need and the auditees on our side, we shouldn't be afraid to have that conversation. And that's, I think that's one of the things that really kind of delineates the team that I'm on now from teams that I've worked on in the past is that we do, we look at our, our relationship with internal audit, with our compliance functions, with our external audit functions as truly collaborative. And, you know, I, I view every single audit as an opportunity to learn something more about my team, because I'm only going to get better if I have some independent entity looking at me and kind of calling me out on the areas that I know I'm not focused on. So you said something there that wasn't, I hadn't thought of, and I think that's very wise. Uh, I want to restate it uh, for the listeners that it's an opportunity to, to get another set of eyes on your team, which I completely agree with. I think that's extremely valuable. The only caveat I think to that is making sure that the auditor is listening to you as well to say, okay, this is what I think is wrong, or this is what I think is risky. Or even though your work paper says this, I believe that this other thing is riskier or more problematic, and and you should focus around this theme uh, when doing your next audit. Uh, if they're unwilling to do that, that's a poor partnership. Yeah, one of the things that we're very quick to pivot to is we're obviously big proponents of risk management within the organization, 
But even when it comes to security audits, I like to call it adversary management, where, okay, fair enough, if you found a control exception on one thing, tell me how an adversary would use that thing to cause harm to the organization. Mm. And I think being able to kind of put that question back on the auditors of, okay, so what, right? What's the true risk of this happening? I've had success in being able to kind of, you know, talk through, you know, a few issues when they've popped up in that area. So, okay. So are they prepared then to look beyond that sort of single control failure? Are they able to articulate sort of the the kill chain of this problem? I mean, yeah. or is it something that they come back and lean on you for? It, which which is it? Or is it both? It's a little bit of give and take. I, I would say, again, going back to, I'm a pretty good storyteller. Most of the time, it's going to be, okay, Richard, tell us more about the story of, again, what are the risks that are being charged to the organization? And just being able to kind of walk them through that process is, uh, is pretty valuable. How do you deal with, and again, we're, we're going to talk in a general sense here, but in many cases, there's the idea in an audit just to sort of get it over with and not to use it uh, to move anything forward or sort of fix anything. Like, how do you press against that? Like, how do, how do you, what advice would you have to somebody out there who dreads the audits and thinks it's a waste of time, is sort of a burden and a boat anchor? What advice do you have to kind of maybe try to flip that around and make it something that actually makes security better rather than just being a pain in the ass? So I go back to just personal discipline, right? Nobody likes to eat their vegetables either. And if you want to eat your vegetables and get it through so you can move on to dessert, not everything in, in our professional life can be dessert either. And the value that audit brings into your organization and into the function that you're overseeing is just as important to a healthy overall diet as vegetables and exercise, right? And so I would, I would just challenge the notion of if you're, if you're sitting there just trying to get through it, something about that experience isn't right. Either you don't have the right people testing you or you don't have the correct discipline to look at yourself first and say, why is this such a burden on what I'm doing every day? Interesting. I agree to that. I've just seen so many bad audits, man. What a, I mean, I, I've seen, but I will also say that in my past that uh, there's been opportunities out of that where typically observations from analytical teams, failures, problems during incident response primarily, where there are sorts of you know black holes of visibility or lack of capability or some sort of even uncooperative or maybe even a system that doesn't generate logs or whatever is needed. There's a missing capability or there's a systemic failure, maybe in a configuration of an endpoint where those observations then get rolled up primarily then to risk. And it's sort of a shared problem then gets audited on. So it's it's very helpful and reviewable and sort of aligns with then the priorities and ultimately the bonus of of other executives across many areas. And that, that gets things moving and corrected. So I've seen both. I like your perspective because you've done both. Yeah, and that's that's one of the things that I would just say is is one of the things I go back to the collaborative nature of the relationship. And and again, I've been part of bad audits as well. And I'm thankful that at Ameticis, like we're my team is part of the annual audit planning session. Right, we sit down, we give our input. Hey, these are the areas that we're worried about. Is that what you're seeing from an enterprise risk perspective? And it's there's a back and forth on the front end of, okay, how, how is this not going to be wasteful for everyone's time? And then so when they show up to actually do the testing, we're already on the same page. And as an executive, I'm looking forward to the results from day one. 
again, so I can get that feedback into the team and make us better. For those that, that are listening, I think most security teams are not a part of that process. And so the fact that you are, I think, is at, at very least interesting. And I think a bit of a, of a, of a differentiator, the fact that they, that they ask you that you're involved and then assuming that they do, that they act on your advice. Did it start that way or did, did you have to work that into the process? Did you have to sort of invite yourself in or was that just the way it was day zero? I think the the desire has always been there, but you know, again, I go back to the burden of leadership. It's it's one of our responsibilities to kind of lay down those paths, right? So when we showed up, I could have just stayed in my office and not engaged with audit and let the things happen to me. That's not really within my personality. So I sought them out, knowing that they can be a value add. Uh, if you engage them in the right way. And that was that was kind of the thing is once I kind of showed up and they saw the appetite that I had and I could speak some of the same language that they did, they did, right? Risk, controls. It, they were happy to have a partner there. And I think it, we've set a model of what some of the audits can be for the rest of the organization. That's awesome. Um, I, I think there's organizations that sort of lack that reciprocity. Uh, I'll say it uh, politely. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think that's, that's fantastic. So you went in and you asked, you said, Hey, look, I'm concerned about this. I want to help you. And, and ultimately if you're giving your feedback and your team is giving, you know, tactical lenses into this, it's going to make their audit more relevant, which that's I think right. is, is the goal. So it's as long as they allow for that. And they also realize that your success as a security team is not just dependent on your own actions. It requires the cooperation of others, both technical and non. Yeah. And I'm talking in a general sense to anyone who's listening, you can actually get a lot of great stuff done. And that's, that's some of the guidance that I try to impart on my team is, you know, don't ever underestimate the power of lunch. Show up at someone's desk and say, hey, I know that we're operating in the same space rather than go round for round in an email. Let's go grab, you know, let's go grab a sandwich and talk it out. And just that, you know, that vulnerability of, of, of being able to show up, you know, put all your cards on the table, having face-to-face interactions with other people, you're, you're already going to be much more successful than if you, you know, send off an email or an instant message, you know, trying to state your position. No question. No question. That takes, I think, self-awareness, some emotional intelligence that sometimes as a profession that we maybe lack or could improve upon. You know, being friendly uh, and getting out from behind the keyboard is is something we can all get better at. Social engineering 101. Well, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, in, <laughs> at some level, absolutely. For the better, uh, I, I would hope. So we've we've just covered a bunch of great stuff uh, and actually was was very little of what we we chatted about in our last talk. So you're you're full of full of great feedback, great information. You you made a comment in our last talk, uh, uh, made a statement that security people are good at trying to secure companies out of business. Tell me about that. What do you mean by that? Yeah. So it's definitely not a, a phrase that I made up, but it, it's definitely one that I'm, I'm going to steal from InfoSec Twitter. Right. And that's security being no as a service. And I just, I think that this resonates with me so well. So many enterprise security functions are the place where innovation goes to die where roadblocks are popped up. And I think like that's one of the things that's most frustrating to me about other security organizations is just, to me, there's just a lack of, of helpfulness within them. And that's one of the things that as I was transitioning into a medicist, that I think really resonated with the message was, 
I think, you know, when I walked into the door, I asked, how can I help? Not necessarily how can I protect, right? And there's a big difference between those two things. I want to be helpful. I want to use my uh, creative problem-solving abilities to, again, drive patient care, to create a culture of caregiving across the organization. And yeah, ultimately, you know, ensure the confidentiality, integrity, and availability of data. But I can't do that if the first thing that I do is I take all that data, I put it in a safe, I lock the safe away, and then I kind of hold that safe from everyone else who needs to access it. The future of healthcare is about exchanging data and doing that securely. And that's where I see a lot of specifically healthcare organizations falling short these days is there's so much emphasis on protecting that data and making it unavailable that we're not driving improvements across the vertical. So you mentioned, and I think you covered most of it. Um, also, you made another statement that there's an issue with how we approach problems. And I'm, I feel like your approach was stated in your first question, which is how can I help? Uh, is, do, do you think that's it or is, is, is it more than that? Is it just, is it the humility of asking how can I help? Uh, not, not getting into security or is there more there? I think there absolutely is. And, and so the first question, again, is, is how can I help? But then being able to relate that, I would say, appetite for being helpful to how your business functions and just what you're doing, right? I, at Ametasis, our population of patients are extremely vulnerable. There are those who are end of life or who are providing care for in their home. So I think about the experience of our home health aides and our hospice nurses when I'm making all of the decisions, because those are very tough jobs and they're very specific, you know, kind of niche jobs within the healthcare industry itself. And so the last thing that I would want at any time is for those people to have a bad day and to need to do something like chart in the evening or make a, make a phone call or an update to patient notes in someone's driveway. And they're unable to do so because of a security control. Right. Right. And that's the thing. Again, knowing the business that you're in for our hospice nurses, they're providing care at end of life. And that's just like the the severity of that. And I guess like the, the weight of that, it's felt across all of the corporate employees. And that's and again, going back to just I just don't want to burden those people with security controls in the way. You know, security works best when it's invisible. And that's one of the things that we strive to do. We're not always successful in it, but we're certainly striving to make us as, as transparent as possible. It's very clear uh, hearing you speak. You know, you're very mission focused and not just security mission. It's, it's the mission of your organization. It's, it's a mission around end-of-life services, hospice care, which is fantastic. And I think that, that approaching it that way People, I'm, I'm going to assume inside your organization, look at you differently. And it's not just about, hey, let's, let's do technical things. Um, you know, you're, you, you've taken the time to sort of learn the business, as they say. But even uh, greater sort of gravity than that is uh, realizing that it's not just always about technology, that this is, this is, um, this is life. This is, this is the, the, the ending of it for many people. And so that kind of balances the scales a little bit and mentally it does for me at least. It does. And that's, and that's one of the things It's again, we're a highly distributed environment. You know, our corporate headquarters is based here out of Baton Rouge, Louisiana. But like I mentioned, we have 500 care centers across the United States. 
And so it's, it's so easy, again, for these corporate, centrally located employees to just think that that's what life is like uh, for our employees, and, it, and it's not. And so one of the things, and it's available to everyone in our organization, and I, I try to take the uh, operational teams up on it as much as we can, but we do ride-alongs with the nurses. And, you know, we'll go and just kind of sit there as they do their visits and we'll kind of see how they're interacting with technology. And it is, it's, it's a humbling experience to be a part of that. I can't even imagine, you know, the only type of ride-along I've, I've ever done is with law enforcement, which is a different type of ride-along. For sure. but, but this is, but to your point, this is a way to go in and see what's their user experience like. Yep. How does it affect patient care? How many systems do they have to sign into? Uh, how? Just do things operate quickly or slowly? Um, are there bugs and issues? Are there flaws? That is, I would wager, I bet it's less than 5%, maybe 2% of security teams have actually gone out and sat with the end user, whether it's call center, whether it's manufacturing line, whatever that is. And so the fact that you guys do that is uh, another differentiator, uh, definitely in the positive way. Yeah, get out there and learn the business, guys. Yeah, no, I. I think the, the counterpoint to that might be, so you're wanting it to be seamless and understand what the business is doing, all great stuff. But at the same time, um, what isn't seamless is when you have a major event, right? So your security configuration can cause an outage, but so can ransomware. So can some other sort of uh, adversary generated problem. How do you, how do you balance that specifically in your messaging up to say, hey, look, I don't want to intrude, but the adversary may, may intrude upon us if we don't do certain things. How do you manage that? Yeah, I would, I would say you kind of have to give yourself a little bit of, of room to always like increase your cadence or increase the friction as those events kind of start unfolding. If you are, you know, one of the examples that I use with the board of directors is I'm not here to build you a thousand foot tall, foot tall fence around the perimeter, right? There's going to be areas in our perimeter where it's a 50 foot fence. There may actually be holes in our perimeter where I'm saying, I don't have enough resources to put that fence up right now. So I know that it's there. I'm going to keep my eye on it, but I'm going to spend some time somewhere else. But at the same time, we always have the ability to add more fencing, right? And so when you look at things like conditional access policies, risk-based behavior uh, on user uh, analytics. Like these are all ways that you can have, I guess, like default, uh, more openness in your environment with the ability to ramp up controls should you start seeing things that look malicious. Yeah, no question. So the ability to, if needed, to make decisions based on telemetry in your environment that maybe push someone a little harder for authentication information or maybe, as you mentioned, uh, you know, risk-based entity or, or, you know, user behavior that then triggers some other sort of event. Yeah. I was just curious that, you know, I can tell how mission focused you are. And again, when I say mission, I mean the organization's mission, which is awesome to see and hear, but sometimes you, you do kind of have to play security guy too, which, which, so I was just sort of curious how you, uh, how you balance that. But the, the story you use is I think reusable for others, which is where I'm kind of going, which is really good. And that, and that's the thing as well, right? When it's time for me to be the security guy, there's clout there, right? I'm not just being the security guy because probably for the other 28 days in the month, I haven't needed to be. So when it's time, you know, I'd like to 
think that when it's time for something to go down and I show up and I'm like, hey, we really should not do that. I think that message is much better received at that moment. Yeah. And, you know, you just have, again, going back to the street cred comments, you have that street cred that you're ready to cash in. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think, I think life is a lot like that. You know, it's, uh, we, we maybe miss that sometimes in corporate America, but yeah, when, when you show up and it's like, Hey, this guy cares about us. He's usually super cool, but he just said, Hey, <laughs> this is way bad. Like, don't touch this. I think we should let the record state that I've never been super cool, but I, I understand the point. <laughs> <laughs> well, He's cool to us, right? Yeah, I won't, I won't, we won't weigh it on a grander scale, but I think that, that you know, your interaction with them has been cool or friendly, uh, you know, uh, helpful. And, uh, and so that's, they're willing to listen a little more closely because you've been helpful. Getting back to the first question you asked, which is how can I help? That's right. So you, you, another thing you stated that I thought was interesting is design and security mindset versus definition of good. I think that's that is a an interesting sort of weighted comparison, one versus the other. What do you mean by that when you're on conceptually you have this design slash security mindset versus what is your definition of good? Can you talk to me about what that is and and maybe how you articulate that? Yeah, I mean I think that kind of goes back to just cost benefit analysis of all the things that we do. There, in my opinion, there is such thing as good enough security, you know, and, and maybe a lot of the listeners to this podcast are kind of aghast by that statement. But again, going back to designing solutions that addressed the very real threats that your organization is facing, and then prioritizing the next thing after that, we don't have to go from nothing to running all the time. And so I think there's a combination of crawl, walk, run, some things are fine crawling and being confident enough in your strategy and your messaging to say, yeah, I'm not spending time on, on the crawling things right now because the areas that I'm walking in, we need to get those ramped up to running. So that's kind of how I define, you know, just good enough. You also had an interesting comment and you have this sort of idea around automation versus headcount sprawl, which is something I see you know, sort of throwing bodies at problems. I see this often. Educate us a little bit about your perspective on how you weigh those two, those two ideas. You know, if, if you came in, I said, hey, you've got 10 more headcount, you'd probably take it, but maybe not, right? And, and there's, you, you might want to define that a little further. What would you do there, right? You, if I say, hey, you could have a X number of dollars to invest in automation, uh, or you can hire 10 more people. How do you step through that? Yeah, this is this is very relevant to our team right now because again, we we run lean and it's it's one of the things I don't want to just ramp up in terms of headcount as much as my team wish that was the case. But I do we focus heavily on items that can be automated. And I think that a lot of pitches that I hear on the automation front are a little off from the technology side because one of the lessons that we've learned is we focus when we have kind of a target of something that can be automated, the first question we ask is this high volume, low value. So a great example of this is submitting URLs to VirusTotal, right? That's not something I necessarily want a human being doing hundreds of times a day. It's boring. That's just not what I want a person focused on. So that's a, that's a key factor for it being a target for automation. And so once you do that, 
you kind of can start moving through the next steps of what is the output of, of those things. And what we've done is we've kind of transformed the action tasks, again, low value, high volume, to turn to our employees to be decision makers. So our bots are submitting things through APIs and bringing decisions to the humans and saying, hey, I submitted this to VirusTotal. This is what I found. Is this the next step that you want me to take, yes or no? And kind of we, we've kind of broken down those decisions. And it's take, I mean, it takes quite a bit of analysis with your team to sit down and do that. The other thing that I find is a lot of executives like automation because they feel like it's going to be, okay, I can do task number one, and that's going to free up people to do task number two. And there's not necessarily a lot of truth to that. What I found is that automation can help you do task number one 100% the same way, 100% of the time. And what's most likely occurring is that your humans who are doing those tasks before you automate it is they're doing the task correctly some of the time and only doing the task some of the time. And so it's not necessarily a, I'm going to be able to do more with less but it is a, I am going to do this the correct way every time. Right. Which is interesting uh, from a one lens on this to sell automation, depending on the, the task is from my perspective, is that repeatability. So it's, it's done, which from an audit perspective, I know you and your prior life would appreciate. So I love it. Prove to me that you do it. That, that's one of the basic audit questions. Okay, how do you find bad stuff? Okay, it's this way. Okay, ha- prove to me that you find this bad stuff the same way every time. And so I'm guessing that the definition of the problem, uh, the sequence of resolution, uh, and then the automation around it is part of that. That, that mindset is, is from your past in part. It is. And, and one of the first items that we kind of sat through operationally to automate, and I think it's where a lot of organizations start, is kind of your, your phishing workflow. And what we did is, you know, we knew very well, okay, a message comes in, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, we're going to do the next thing, this is where we're going to store the artifacts, all that good stuff. And again, the, the analyst who is doing this work, he had a little bit of like a, a just doesn't look right filter on his workload. So he'd be, you know, a phishing message would come in. He would look in and be like, "This is this is dumb. This isn't even a sophisticated attempt. I don't need to address this. Maybe I just pull the message out and I'd go about my day." Because again, this person has hundreds of other things to work on. Right. Well, that's not the wrong decision for a human to take. But the things that we've missed out on there are all of the lessons learned. Maybe it is a low value kind of attempt, but the artifacts there. You never know. Kind of like the butterfly flaps its wings. You never know where those artifacts are going to turn up in future attacks. Right. And so now that we have the automated way of doing it, all of that information is stored and correlated and we have it available to us. And so I, I don't have a person saying, ah, you know, is this, is this really worth my time or not? That calculations removed from their day to day. Right. They're not, they're not burdened by that, by that work. They only deal with the sort of the artifact that's created from that analysis. Help, help me understand um, and the listeners as well. So phishing as a concept, is that in your, in your estimation, is that high volume or low volume? Is it high value or low value in general, or does it depend, right? Because there's subclasses of, of that. There's different sort of gravity, but how would you label that? 
Yeah, it it runs the gambit. I mean, it is it's it's a high volume thing. But what I would say, the thing that worries me about fishing is that it is such a high volume, and the quality of the fishing attacks is so diverse that if you're spending your time on the wrong type of message, the message that you should be looking for gets through. Got it. And that's what we that's what we see a lot of. You know, it's easy to pick up on the 400 recipient messages that is just nonsense, but you know the targeted messages to three of your users with a very specific ask, those are a little bit tougher to sniff out. So could it be fair to say that if you are responsible for phishing and you're not uh, looking at it the same way every time, or at least doing the same set of steps, that your fear uh, as both a, a technical person and an officer is that you're, you're worried about the three or four and you think that automation is kind of the thing that if, if you're lacking automation, if you're, if you're basing it on sort of the decision of the end user or their hero work, that that's sort of a, a risky area that, that you, you're, you're, you're putting in automation to take that risk off the table in, in essence, at least in terms of the, the pro- is that, is that accurate or not? Yes, ab- absolutely. I want to reduce, reduce that possibility as much as possible. Do you think if you're starting off, it, let's say we have, let's say you and I go to a, uh, both to new companies together and we're going to build a security team. We have some base technology. Is phishing a, a good first candidate for automation or is it, is it not good? Where would, would you start with it or would you start with something else as, as a theme of attack? Yeah, I would start with it just because of all of the tools that are available in the market that seems to be what everyone's focused on. So I would say your, your time to deployment for a phishing workflow can be relatively short. Okay. Where I see a lot of the value coming in and future automation for us is uh, intelligence gathering specifically. We, we spend a lot of resources on threat intel. And so being able to take different feeds aggregate them and relate them to other things, that's an area of high interest to us. Interesting. So tell me how, how are you relating that into phishing? Well, it's separate for the, the phishing. Um, it's just for the next, for the, well, so for the next workflow after phishing, that's where we would spend the investment. Got it. I was just thinking in terms of there may be a relationship between the two, especially if you're doing sort of retrospective analysis from one to the other, right? So you have artifacts that are in the first sort of, you, know, you can sort of build on automation. You have these little little blocks, right? And so you, because you've automated phishing and, and the results, those results can then be compared to other telemetry. In this case, you're talking about you know, information gathering or intel. Interesting. What about, so what are you doing there? Like, I mean, is it still, you, know, you told me earlier that you spent, months before engaging the machine. And I love that statement. And it was on your journey to uh, automation, which you also said that few are doing it, few are doing it well. So those two ideas, if you're spending months before engaging a machine, talk to me a little bit about that, that sage advice. What does that mean? Like what you, I'm interested in automation. I've got a new security team. Everyone's talking about it. Uh, I want to start plugging stuff in right away, right? Why did you spend months? So I think there's a lot of value that you can get from the insights of your team and just, again, having very frank conversations about what is annoying about your job? What are the things about your job that wish you wish you could do better? What are the things that are keeping you up at night? 
and getting a little bit of that input, right? There's enormous value in, in the pain that your operational people feel every single day. And that's what it is. You know, when we sat down and had those discussions on the team, people were saying the same things. I don't like that. I have to get this. And I know that it's nothing. I know that the threat's been, you know, kind of vanquished already. Why do I have to submit the URL to virus total? Mm-hmm. And it's kind of, you know, and again, they're, they're making a determination there that the attack has been, def- the adversary has been defeated. And that's not always the case. And so again, like that, that pain that, that they feel, that's where you'll get the most engagement from the teams in order to kind of like make their lives a little bit easier. So one of the things I often say is that I think the world's driven on two things. It's either pain or people that uh, aspire to do something bigger, right? So yeah. So they're either running from pain or they're running toward uh, something that gets them excited. And in this case, I think that the great icebreaker that, that anyone could have, especially as a CISO, to go down and talk with the folks in the SOC which are ultimately the ones that are going to save you if you have a problem, a big problem or a little problem. And to go have that very human conversation and say, Hey, what sucks about your job? Yeah. And I've got a guy on my team and he's a, he's a rock star. Every, everybody on the teams are a rock star. And, and this guy, he'll tell you, you know, within the first five minutes, my biggest strength is my laziness, right? Which is, which is such a funny thing for him to say, but it, it is. And that's, that's what he, he wants to do is he wants to automate as much of his job as possible so that he's not bogged down by kind of the monotony of the day-to-day. I want to restate that. There is great value in hiring, at least having one person on your team who's lazy. Yeah. And, I, and providing that they have an outlet for that laziness, meaning he's probably you know, very good at scripting or probably has a development background and say, okay, you know, the hell with, with click, 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 you know, right, click, cut, paste, drop in a notepad, all this nonsense, which gets into the second part, which is not, not, you know, maybe it starts with, Hey, what do you hate about your job? But it's, what do you, you know, what inspires you and indirectly automation and and not wasting your time and allowing yourself to be lazy is what inspires him, which is the, which is the engine that builds all this. I'm guessing. And it's, and it's usually, as soon as he makes that statement to other people, I follow right behind it with, he's the hardest working lazy person I've ever met. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's, but I'm even okay if somebody can, knows how to automate, say, hey, if you can get your, if you can get it done. And it's, it was going to take a very good friend of mine uh, has this, the same mindset. He's, he has a passion around taking silly manual things and, and automating them. And it's, it's lovely. You know, he's, he, um, he saves hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. And, and sort of lost effort and adds repeatability to, to um, very large organizations uh, professionally. And it's, it's awesome how that's a, that's a career. In fact, I think every security team needs one. You need an automation person or somebody who has that, that mindset uh, to then leverage either something you make on your own or ideally uh, something that, that ties together your existing investments in, in security and in IT. That's the other part of it is, you know, on the team, I think some of the, the feedback that I typically get, typically get as a leader is don't let perfection be the enemy of the good. And it, it's my job to kind of solve these problems at an enterprise level, which takes, you know, rounding up the troops and engaging different areas and bringing different teams to the table. But all of that takes time. 
And there are some things that, quite frankly, my team doesn't have the time for me to go out and build those bridges. So while I'm building bridges and, and paving the roads, they'll automate something and get it up and running that's just good enough, right? It'll address the risk or it'll move the needle from, from point A to point B. And then so when we do bring our stakeholders, everybody to the table, it's like, hey, again, we've gone from zero to crawling without you. Right. We want to take this and mature it a little bit more and get everybody on the same page so that the inputs and outputs are well-defined, the controls are in place, everything's well-documented. And that's one of the things that, again, I'm, I'm so thankful of the team is they don't, they don't wait for me to bring everyone to the table. If they see an opportunity, they're jumping on it and they're starting to rock and roll. How do you share the automation story and the benefits of it to, to the ELT? Yeah, I won't say the board because that's really not a board topic typically, but how do you, how do you describe what you're trying to do? You, know, you mentioned you run lean. You, know, you have a, a limited number of people, and so you must, you must have clearly defined automation goals. Is that something you talk about? Do you, do you discuss that with, it, with your, your peers and your leaders? It is, and, and we do it in terms of innovation because the way that we've done the automation in our environment is uh, we're a heavy Microsoft shop, and so some of our bots basically interact with us through Microsoft Teams. And so it's, it's such a cool experience to be able to sit down and fire up your instant messaging client and have someone report a phishing message. And then the client goes, hey, we found a malicious message. Do you want me to block this URL? And we can just type yes into that question and beacons out to the web proxy and we can then block the URL. And so it's not necessarily, I mean, the automation part is, is the cool part that's driving all of that, but also showing uh, senior leaders that my team isn't like, we're not going into different systems. We're not hopping around. They're doing their work. And then a computer is bringing them decisions. Right. And they're entering yes or no. And then they're kind of off to the race. They're not, mo- you know, they don't have to stop what they're doing, address a risk or address an adversary. They're going about their day and still being productive and, and reducing risk to the organization. So I, I like the sort of the branding is what I'll say of this is innovation. This isn't necessarily technology. It's not even necessarily automation. Uh, it's supported by that, but this is a this is how you innovate. And and whether you're a big organization with lots of resources or small, you know, frugality has sort of moved you into this. But this but the decisions that you've made are valuable no matter who you are. And I think that's that that comes through in your description and uh, your talk of sort of the execution of this, which is awesome. Yeah, and it's you know again going back to storytelling again. Automation is, to technical people, it's fun, but to non-technical people, it's boring, right? It's like, okay, great. You did something that doesn't like, who cares? But sitting there and watching a machine interact with you and you giving a machine basic instructions and then other things happening, there's still some magic there that uh, even non-technical people can appreciate. Well, yeah, I mean, you can, <laughs> you can demo that. You can even, you can share it and get that feedback. So I have one more question for you that we, we ask our guests and um, we kind of close on this. Pursuant to the name of the show, a new CISO, what does being a new CISO mean to you? Yeah, so that's, that's a great question. And it goes back to the way that I message this out as I'm interacting with peers as, as well as uh, other leaders and other organizations is I like to call it disrupting the cult of security. 
because over the years, that's kind of what your security function has turned into. It's this weird group that some organizations want to interact with, other organizations don't want to interact with. Is it providing value? Is it being a roadblock? And kind of breaking down all of those barriers and having you know the platform to engage senior leaders within my organization as well as across the healthcare vertical and just showing them again how a more practical approach to security, how a culture of caregiving and the ability to provide help can influence your team to make just drastic changes in the way that you protect information. Perfect. Great response. Richard, you have a wonderful mission. Uh, Your time is important. Thank you so much for spending some of it with us today on the show. Yeah, thank you again for having me. That's it for this episode of the new CISO. Thank you for listening. Check out more episodes on exabeam.com forward slash podcast. And remember to rate, review, and subscribe to get brand new episodes first. 